I was working with Mika Chaya Day. We both left Shia Day. He went on to Saatchi and Deutsch and some did PlayStation and all this. He did really, really good work. And he kept saying, don't you want to get back into it? Wouldn't you like to be, maybe we could be a team somewhere. Wouldn't you like to be here? Wouldn't you like to be? And then he'd say, oh, you know, they're looking for an associate creative director. And I was like, nah. And he said, why? You're so good. You still have so many good ideas. You'd be so good at that. And I said, you know, Nick, I've won every fucking major advertising award in the world. What am I going to do? Win it again? And I think there's a lot of freedom in just saying, meh, I did it. I did it already. Let's do something else. Sometimes you hear those stories about people who go from being fans to friends. This is one of those stories. In 2000, I used to listen to April Winchell on KFI Radio out of Los Angeles. It was this hilarious, irreverent two-hour show on a Sunday afternoon that I would literally make appointment listening. I soon discovered that April was probably one of the most creative people that I would ever know. That radio show was just one of her successes. Along with her late husband in the 90s, their agency won all the advertising industry awards you could. She later became a viral sensation when she launched Regretsy, a blog that skewered some of the more eccentric offerings on Etsy, which scored her a book deal, millions of fans, and a few death threats. She's had a one-woman show produced by Lily Tomlin, and she's only the second person to ever voice Clarabelle Cow for Disney. She's worked since she was a child and had a famous dad, Paul Winchell, who was the original voice of Tigger and was on countless classic television shows in the 60s and 70s. But like most creatives, her success and pedigree masked a level of suffering and darkness that almost consumed her. But it did not, and we're all the luckier for it. My name is Paul Chamberlain. And this is Smart, Funny, Tortured with April Winchell. One of my favorite things you did was Regretsy. Mm -hmm. And it brought you a lot of success. It always seems to happen when things have fallen apart. Like uh, when there was a writer's strike uh, at the end of the 90s and there were no cartoons and there was no production and there was no commercials. So neither of the industries that I was working in were working. And I uh, called KFI and said, hey, I have an idea for a radio show. And I was on that weekend. And then I had a three-year radio show where you know, that I consider that like a kind of happy, creative part of my life, even though I was really unhappy in life. I put all of my effort into that job and it was really satisfying. And um, it was the same thing with Regretsy. I was kind of at a low point and advertising had slowed way down and um, uh, cartoons had slowed way down. And it was, what happened was, uh, uh, what's it called? Treasure Planet and Atlantis, these two big Disney films that just tanked. And so when something bombs horribly, everything goes to shit. So there was no production for a while at all. So you're just kind of sitting there trying to figure out what the fuck to do. And I had this thought about doing this website and I thought, well, it'll get like maybe a little ad revenue or something until Etsy tells me to take it down. And so I did it. And within 72 hours, it had 92 million hits. And I was not prepared for it. And um, it w if I had thought about it, I would never have done it. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't think about all of the pitfalls. I didn't think about it. I just thought it was funny to make fun of the handcrafted movement. It just got super successful and uh, got a book deal out of it. And it was fun for about 10 minutes, and then it turned into absolute torture. You know, death threats and things still following me around to this day on the internet, you know. 
was bad. That was a bad one. That took me quite a few years to recover from, from that experience. I think it's appropriate for me to say that you were probably one of the biggest inspirations I've had creatively and professionally in my life. Really? Yeah. It was your show on KFI. That's fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Tim Curry. You don't have to be drunk to listen to April Winchell on KFI, but it really doesn't hurt. And it was you showing me that you can be snarky, you can be brilliant, you can be creative. And it seemed to the listener that you were having the time of your life. I was. I had such fun. I had so much fun doing that. I worked all week on it. I, I just wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something nobody else was doing and nobody was listening. Nobody was paying attention to me at that station. I would find mail in the, in the mail room with my name and somebody had written like a who, like a <laughs> question mark. Like, I don't know. Who the, nobody was fucking paying. Nobody. I was so under the radar. I could do anything I wanted. And I did really weird shit. And I kept thinking about those early days of Letterman where he would just do anything, you know? And so my friend Roy would host with me sometimes and we did like a they wouldn't give us any money we did a remote from the kitchen this is kfi we're doing our first live remote i'm pretty excited and i think he's there already let's see if he is hang on a second roy yes are you at the new location i'm at the remote location tell everybody where you are i'm in the kitchen god that's so cool what's the mood like in the kfi kitchen right now Darling, there's nobody here. There's nobody there. H hang on one second, all right? All right. All right. Hi, you're on KFI. Hello? Yes. Hi, I want to know what's in Bill Handel's refrigerator. You know what? That's a very good question. I think that we need to go to the refrigerator. I would love to go to the refrigerator. All right, we're going to do that right now. Thank you for calling. Thank you. You're okay. the best. Thank you. Roy? Yes, I'm D here. Did you hear that? Yes. Yeah, well, I think we need to know what's in the refrigerator. All right, let's go over there. All right. Here's a bag. Let's see what's in here. Oh, Dr. Laura. <laughs> Wait a minute. Do Dr. Laura's in the bag? She's right in the bag. <laughs> well, she's very small. You know, they've got to keep her in the refrigerator overnight or she melts. <laughs> <laughs> or she turns into an apple doll. <laughs> oh, my God. What did you find? It's a blue cup. Yeah. It's got a lid on it. Yeah. I'm open it up. Yeah. Oh, oh my Oh, God. Oh, my God. Yo. <laughs> All right, I'm bringing this in. <laughs> Don't bring it in. I'm bringing this in to show you because you have got the smell darling. This is a sample that needs to go to the lab. You just take a whiff of that. I'm going back to the kitchen. <laughs> oh, yeah, now it's all over my hands. <laughs> oh, God, what is this? Did you smell it? Oh, my God. Oh, God. <laughs> Roy, it's bubbling out from under the seal. It's got a Tupperware seal on it. It's bubbling out. Not anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was just like the dumbest stuff. We did a remote with him driving through Jack in the Box. How much can you spend at Del Taco? I mean, it just was, it was hilarious. And I, I, I worked on it all week. I had weird music. I refused to take phone calls. And I would get emails from people saying, you know, it's a talk show and we're supposed to talk. And I would say to them, if you were interesting, you'd have your own show. And then, you know, that was it. I didn't want to talk about the war. I didn't want to talk about Desert Storm. I didn't want to talk about the weapons of mass destruction. I didn't want to talk about any of that. I just wanted to talk about bad 
uh, Judith Light TV movies, bad commercials, and bad covers, bad com- covers in other languages, you know, like 60 tracks of, of uh, Stairway to Heaven in Polish and Bulgarian and, you know, and uh, that's all I wanted to do. And I did that for for years and I had so much fun because I was fat and miserable and unhappy and worked to death. And I had no confidence uh, reaching out to people or being social or being seen. So this was a way for me to have friends and connection, but nobody had to see me. It was a relief. What a 34-year-old dude who thought it was the funniest shit he'd ever heard thought he was listening to a body positive, oh, that's hilarious. strong, zero fucks broad, just crushing it. That's really funny. People always say to me, really? You were 300 pounds? I don't remember you being, I never thought of you as being fat. And that was sheer Houdini mind fuck that I would do on you. <laughs> because if I immediately distracted you with being funny or engaging or, uh, you know, entertaining, then you would not get to that point. You'd never even think about it. You know, I, I would will myself to not have a corporal being and you wouldn't see it. I mean, can you imagine how much work that took? So what was the catalyst stripping away what the benefits were? What allowed it to take hold? What allowed you to take a breath and say, okay, this is surmountable. This is accessible. I'm on my way. I struggled quite a bit. And I went through a lot of um, therapy for it. And every therapist said the same thing. They said, until you get to the root of what's making you overeat, you are never going to lose weight and you're never going to keep it off. And um, I think that that turned out to be exactly backwards because there are so many problems that come with being fat that you can't get to anything else. That's why it's so efficient, like alcohol, like any other kind of substance. Because if I'm completely immersed in Things like, can I fit in that airplane seat? And can I fit in that chair? Are there arms on that chair? Will I be able to get into that chair? Will it button? I mean, if that's my experience, I'm never going to get beyond that to my childhood sexual abuse, the trauma that I haven't processed, and all the stuff that's making me want to disappear, making me want to insulate myself. So I think that you get such a coat of shit to wade through before you can get to the real stuff. I think it's less important what order you get there. Do you know what I mean? I think whatever, whatever leads you to, um, understanding, uh, I never could have done this the other way. I never would have gotten to it. I had something really interesting happen to me today. I was looking at these life coaches, people who coached Hugh Jackman, Olympic athletes, presidential candidates. And I noticed a through line. And it was until you realize your true purpose, you cannot achieve success. Mm. It, it, it was almost shaming. That's interesting. And, and what was lacking in all of this was that there was no compassion, mm. no empathy, no one saying, yeah, there, there may be some mental health issues, some trauma issues. And, and if you're creative, there's always going to be other stuff in there. Yeah. I had therapy last year. Uh, you know, as you know, I've had tremendous grief and, and a lot of loss and trying to cope with it. And when, by the time I found this therapist, I was really in the toilet. I wasn't bathing, you know, I wasn't getting out of the house. I was sitting upstairs on the couch in my bedroom, watching judge Judy for like 16 hours a day, like doing nothing. And it was like a year of that. And I started getting really, really heavy and I was very depressed. So I finally found this therapist and, and she said to me, well, um, 
can you, can you say to yourself? And I was said, I said, no, I can't. I am not going to post a notes on my mirror that say you're perfect just the way you are. And you don't have to change and you're wonderful. I can't do it. I, I have a perfect body. No, I don't. I don't. And I don't believe it. And I don't feel it. And so we did this exercise where we kept backing up and backing up and backing up. Can you say, I want to go to the gym? No. Can you say, I want to take a shower today? Uh, yeah, I can say that. I want to be clean. Yes, I can say that. I can't say I want to take a shower. I can't say I want to eat well, but I can say, yeah, I want to, you know, so we just kept backing it up until you could find that first positive statement that you could really believe. And that was like a key. That was a key in, in a lock and things really fell into place very quickly. after. Yeah. And, and that's why it's so easy to just be in it. There's an honesty in just saying, fuck it. I'm just going to stay on this couch and watch Judge Judy. Uh, I'm living my authentic self. Okay, it's going to kill me, but I'm, I'm living authentically. That's it. That's my best life today. So, yeah, I mean, that was so to just to put your eye on something positive. And, you know, I'm a bit of a perfectionist, obviously. And so if you can't achieve every fucking thing that you think you should achieve, then no effort is worth recognizing. It's all garbage until you've hit the zenith of what you're trying to do, right? So any little effort felt very pale and pathetic, you know? And sometimes John, you know, my husband John would say, honey, I'm proud of you. You did this today. And I'd say, why? Why? I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do this. Stop giving me praise I didn't earn because it didn't feel like I hadn't done everything, you know, but when you start realizing that it's, it sounds so cornball, but when you just start taking one little tiny step and you take that same step every fucking day after a week, you're like, wow, I drank all the water I wanted to drink. I did that. I did that this week. I'm going to do that this week. And maybe I'm going to have more vegetables this week, maybe. And then you do it and then you do that. And then it's just a little tiny, you know, it's just bricks. It's like you've been torn down to your studs and you need to rebuild your foundation. And for me, I felt like I needed to get the trucks in here. I needed the backhoe. Everything had to be, I had to just come out there with my humble little brick, one brick a day and start rebuilding it. And, uh, and now I have a house, you know? Yeah. I mean, you were there. I still keep track of every single day that I don't have a glass of wine. Yeah. Yeah. When you take that first step of the 10,000 mile journey, blah, blah, blah. When you took that step, did you recognize the value of that path? Like this isn't just another Scarsdale diet. This is the one. Not right away. No, not right away. There's a lot of false starts when you're trying to climb out. Yeah. You kind of don't pin all your hopes on it and think this is it. This is going to be the one. In fact, that's probably the worst thing you can do. You probably just say to yourself, I'm just going to go for a walk. I'm just going to, today, I just want to take a shower. And that was enough. That was enough, right? Like just, I, I, she says, sometimes I said, sometimes when I'm at the gym and I'm working out and I look around and I'm just such a fucking mess. And I look at these people who are really fit and great bodies. And I think about all the years that I wasted and I hate myself and I'll never look like that no matter what I, and I feel like I've done so much damage to my body. And, I'm, and she says, can you say to yourself when you're doing that, I want to finish my workout. Just that. Can you just say, I'm here, I want to finish my workout? And that was like, yeah, I can say that. I can't say, I am great just the way I am. And I feel so good about myself. And I look at me, I'm at the gym. There's a thousand journeys of step. 
I just want to finish my workout. And it just, you just keep cutting those pieces smaller and smaller so you can say them and mean them. And, you know, the thing that really got me on track was I said to myself, I just want to feel better. I don't care if nothing changes except I feel better. Yeah. And that's doable because if you go for one walk, you can feel better. So when you were experiencing the wave of success in the 90s with your late husband, Mick, and you were winning the awards and the entertainment industry accolades and things like that, how did you keep in control back then when you were in the zone? I was garbage. I mean, I hadn't, I hadn't, I was a mess. Were you hiding it? Was it a hidden mess? You know, it wasn't even a, it was more like I thought I am damaged. I am wounded. I am extremely mentally ill and I am always going to be this insufficient, unlovable person. And I met this person who is also very damaged and has a lot of issues and somehow through our unconditional love of each other in this very unconventional relationship, we wound up making each other well. And then after, you know, 28 years, we were obsolete. You know what I mean? All that unconditional love, we sort of were like, well, I guess, well, you're out of the closet now and you're, you know, and I'm not 300 pounds and I'm willing to have a physical relationship with somebody. And so were you. And it just, it was like a weird, you know, but in all of those years that we worked together and we accomplished that much, that's all we did. That's it. We just worked and made money. That's where we got all of our self-esteem. So the fact that he was full of shame and closeted, the fact that he had all kinds of religious um, leftover indoctrination from his childhood that he couldn't really parse properly, that I had trauma that I hadn't really processed. We just didn't look at it. We just had this safe little happy home and we loved each other dearly. And we realized that we were a good team and we could be very successful together. And that's all we did. We just loved each other and made money and tried to be as successful as possible. And it was for the, for the time, it was great. Was it an outward brand? This couple that functioned the way that it did, both in business and personally, people knew of that structure and that was your brand. That was how you guys presented yourself? Mm, well, they, they didn't know about his sexuality because he was closeted for a long time. But I mean, I, they, you only had to meet him to know. My, my late friend Roy used to say, oh, darling, he was so gay that when he opened his mouth, the purse fell out. So that was... That was pretty much, I mean, you would know, but nobody talked about it because it was our arrangement. We, and also we really, really loved each other. This wasn't like a, you know, a beard or we were trying to fake something. This is not a rom-com. We really loved each other. We had everything we were capable of having at the time, which was much more than either one of us ever thought we could have. So it was good in that respect. Or the conventional cisgendered relationships too of, of the day. Yes. It was, and people often think that, you know, we were covering something or it was love. It was romantic love. It just wasn't a physical relationship. And, um, but at the time that's all I could handle. And that was more than I ever thought I'd have. And, uh, and, you know, I'm a different, I'm a different person now. Mick made me well, and he enabled me to meet John and I have an actual grown up, you know, complete marriage with a, a heterosexual man and uh, it's, again, it's not something I ever thought that I would have. I always say every good thing I have, I have because of Mick. So uh, yeah, he was, a, he was a, good, a good force in my life. Obviously, the name of this podcast is Smart, Funny, Tortured. And, and we've gotten the first two knocked out. You've demonstrated that brilliantly. 
But within all creatives' journeys, there's either one or many tortured moments where your drive, your passion, what makes you want to breathe takes you to an inflection point. What was that moment for you? I've had a lot of very bad moments. <laughs> Is there a Venn diagram? Is there a midpoint where those two met? Uh, the two being the, my worst moment and... And your creative life. Oh, yeah. Did, did it have to do with your creative pursuits? Yeah, that's interesting. I never thought of that before, but there was a there was a moment where uh, I did this one-woman show that Lily Tomlin and Jane Wagner produced um, at the Roxy in Los Angeles, and it was, it was this burned-out lounge singer character that I used to do. And... Um, it just occurred to me at this at this time that I had done every single thing that I could possibly do in the industry without being seen. Cartoons, voiceover, writing, and now this character where you would never know that it was me in a million years because it was full wig. I had a Nolan Miller dress on that he made for me out of feathers, <laughs> you know. And um, so that that was like my lowest point emotionally, you know, and it, for that period, I guess. And but it was also a real uh, highlight because I got to do this character. And when I put that wig on and the, she was supposed to be fat and sloppy and that was part of the humor. And so I wore that like a character. And for the time that I was on stage, it was just heavenly. I wasn't self-conscious. It was part of the job. And so, and that was one of the best things I ever did. That, that was a fantastic show and I was real proud of it. So yeah, I guess there would be a Venn diagram there in terms of, you know, your lowest point and your most creative point where they intersect. I think that might've been it. And then the lowest point, and I'm going to take a leap here, was the loss of Mick. Yeah, I mean, the whole experience was, you know, th I mean, there's no way. There's, there are so many points on that graph that are just, you know, it's just not even speakable. And it was really bad for John, too, because John really cared about him. We were all, we, the three of us were very close friends. He, he picked out my wedding ring with John. I mean, there were very close. And when John proposed to me in front of Mick, I said, you're going to have to ask Mick. And Mick said, oh, he already asked me. We picked out the ring together. So it was, it was that kind of like, you know, we were a family. But this was after he had died. And it was like a couple weeks later. And I was in our house in LA cleaning it out. And that was very hard too, because everything in that house was just a museum of all of those years that we had spent together being very, very happy. And, uh, or not happy, or happy together being unhappy. And, uh, he never, he didn't want me to take anything. When he found his boyfriend and decided to live his truth as a gay man, I just left. I left everything there. I didn't want to upset him. He was very in in, um, connected to his stuff. You know, he really, he, his identity was his things. And I didn't want to take anything. I figured I can buy forks. I'm not going to lose this relationship over dishes and shit. So I left everything there. And over the years, I'd come to visit and I'd be like, oh, you know what? I'd really like to take that. No, no, it looks great there. You can't, you know. So when he died, all this shit came back to me, all of my stuff, all the stuff that we bought in Europe over the years, things, trinkets of, you know, happy experiences and successes. And so being in that house was like a mausoleum. It was disturbing. And the time came when I had to clean out his closet. And it was very difficult because he was a clothes hoarder and um, you couldn't just throw things away like a hoarder that has cats, you know, dead cats and stuff. He, he had things with price tags on them that were beautiful and you had to be thoughtful about it. So I opened up the closet and there was a five foot pile of clothes in there. And so I started to dig it all out. And at the very top shelf in this closet, I saw a box. So I climbed up on 
this clothing to get this box. And as I was at the top of this pile, I felt it starting to give way. And I thought, you know, just fall. It's just clothing. Nothing's going to happen to you. It's just clothes. So I just let myself fall. And when I fell, I hit my head on the corner of the open closet door really hard. And I landed on the floor and all of this sorrow and, you know, you're on autopilot because you got to clean the house out and you got to sell this stuff and you got to move on. It just broke, you know, it just, the bubble broke, the bubble, that veneer of normality or whatever, you know, being able to function just broke. And I sat on the floor and I just started sobbing and John wasn't home. He was at the house. He was having lunch with someone. And I just started crying, just all the crying that I couldn't do when he was still here because he didn't want to see me cry, certainly. Just all came out. I just was laying on the floor, just sobbing on his clothing. And I saw a box on the floor by the shoes, and it was his medicine. And I pulled it out, and I opened the lid of the box, and there were a 1,000 Oxycontin in there. And... uh like three boxes of fentanyl, you know, just like everything that, that somebody who's in end stage cancer is, you know, and I opened that box and I looked at it and I had a bottle of water in the closet and I thought, this is just never going to get better, which is something that I think, uh, it's very easy to believe, you know, you get to the end where you cannot just can't. And it just feels like such a bunch of bullshit to think that the sun is going to rise tomorrow and all that shit. And that's it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know, it's just horseshit. And I thought, this is it. I'm never going to be happy again. I'm never going to be okay again. And I opened the bottle and I had the bottle of water and I started to unscrew the bottle of, of Oxy. And all of a sudden, the fucking Chihuahua came in. Fitzy, who is my least favorite dog, came into the closet because he heard me wailing back there. Nobody else, not the fucking French bulldog who I'd give a kidney to. She couldn't fucking be bothered. But the chihuahua, who I have a little disdain for, comes padding in and looks at me. And I'm holding the bottle of the pills. And I'm looking at the dog. And he comes in and he crawls into my lap. And he just looks at me. He looks up at me. And then that was it. Like the spell was broken. You know, I came back to reality. And I realized that's not what I wanted to do. But uh, so now I owe him like an Indian life debt, which makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> now, the other lowest point that I had, but like comically low was um, Mick and I won. What was it called? The Grand Andy Advertising Award. First time it had ever been given for radio. I was wearing like a black suit because I couldn't find anything else. I'm just sloppy and sad. You know, we've just won $50,000 and they're taking pictures of us and I look horrible. And it's every, every time you get an accolade, it's depressing because you don't want to, you got nothing nice to wear. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so we went, we went all this attention and everything and we get in the car. I said, let's, we should go have dinner. So I, we said to the driver, where should you go? He says, oh, you should go to Le Bernardine. It's a really nice, you know, French restaurant and you'd love it. So I said, okay, we're in New York. So. He drives us to Le Bernardine. We go to the uh, to walk in, and I say to the woman, "Oh, you know, we just won this award. We're very excited. And blah, blah, blah. Can we have a, We don't have a reservation." She goes, "Well, let me check." And she comes back and she goes, "I'm sorry. The chef says the sauces are sleeping." So that was unfortunate. So we turn around to leave, and as we're leaving, Lou Wasserman comes out with his wife Edie, right? The late Lou Wasserman, head of William Morris, and like you know. 
So he comes out and he looks at me. I don't know who he is. You know, I've never seen him. I've heard of him. He's storied and all, but I've never seen him. So he, he looks at me and he goes, hey, you. And I thought, oh, he's an ad guy. He must have been, you know, at this thing at town hall and saw me win this big award. It was the biggest award of the night, right? I go, hey, Ben. And he says, uh, how are you? I said, I'm great. He goes, boy, we are so happy for you. We are so happy for your success. You're good for you. You deserve it. I said, well, thank you. And I showed him the award. He goes, that's great. I said, yeah, we just won it tonight. We're excited. He goes, you deserve it. And his wife, Edie, is putting her fur on and she walks over and her eye, she looks at me and she looks at him and her eyes get huge, like coffee cups, right? Like she's terrified. And I don't know what she's terrified about, but I could see she's scared. So he says, um, I want you to know you deserve every bit of success that's come to you. And I think you're wonderful. I said, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. That's, you know, that means a lot to us. He says, yeah. And he goes, and let me tell you something. There is nobody better to host the Tonys than you. And I looked at him and I went, oh my God, he thinks I'm Rosie O'Donnell. And I just stood there and she looked at me and I, I just nodded, you know, and he goes, so he goes, you know, Edie and I, we're going to Paris tomorrow. And I, I didn't know what to say because I thought the more I talk, you know, the more it's going to be clear that I'm not, huh, you know? So I just gave him thumbs up. It's like, hmm, thumbs up. And uh, he leaves and she mouths like a thank you as they're going to their car to, not to embarrass him. And that's, that was bad. It was funny at least, but it was bad. That was you said something in that story that struck me, winning accolades and looking like shit. Yeah. Was there a part of you that was policing? Like, if I get myself to a place where I feel better about myself physically, I won't win? Huh. Because that's, that seemed to be sort of a qualifier as you were telling the story. I never thought about it like that. Well, I told you Bernie Brillstein said to me, I don't want to work with you because you're well, you seem well adjusted. And I find that people who are happy are not dependably funny. And I thought, wow, well, maybe you should get to know me a little bit better. <laughs> but um, I didn't ever really thought of it that way. But I did get to a point where I said, you know what, this, fuck it. I have to make peace with this because I'm never going to be anything but this. And I have to, I have to succeed in spite of how badly I feel about myself. Yeah. So this became not a, not an impetus in a, in a, in a conventional way. Like it was my fire to, you know, like I thought it was my, my talisman, but that if I worked hard enough, I wouldn't have to think about it. That's it. So it was chronic. It yes. was a chronic condition that you were going to live with and that was it. Yeah. If I'm always going to be this person, what's the best I can hope for? Well, a loving, happy marriage with a gay man and a lot of financial and business success. And that seemed like plenty for me. I didn't think I'd have anything, you know? It was an equitable deal. Yeah, it was equitable. I mean, a lot of good came from it. But, uh, I, you know, it's been a weird ride because I didn't, I've never really pursued my dreams ever. I knew Kevin Spacey for years. I know we've talked about this. I wasn't living in LA and he was in LA because he had been nominated for uh, Usual Suspects. And we had lunch at Swingers in Hollywood. And we were talking about, I was telling him about my advertising career and how great that was going and that I had just won all these awards, blah, blah, blah. And I was doing cartoons. I was a lot of, lot of cartoons. And he was listening to me and he said, you know, and I'd known him since teenage years when we were both like, we're going to do theater, you know. And he said, you know, it seems to me that your life has been a series of highly lucrative contingency plans. I thought that was kind of interesting. And I said, um, yeah, that's exactly right. And I said, how did you keep that from happening to you? And he said, I never had a plan B. And 
that is so true because he's nothing without his work. So I wonder, I can't even imagine what, what he is now, you know? He's got his own bag of shit to deal with, and this is how he... It's a very much a similar process. I hate myself, so I'm going to be very successful, and that will be, like, my drug. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Now the conversation you and I have are like, I don't have the fucking energy. N nothing grabs me. I mean, what is the line that Mick used to say? <laughs> he used to say, I cannot get another pale, bloodless boner. <laughs> another thin anemic boner for this. And it's true because you couldn't grind it up anymore, you know? And so I'm in this weird part of my life where I still have lots of ideas and things that I'd like to do. And it's, it used to be when I was an unhappy person, I would get a tunnel, you know, in a way, Bernie Pearlstein was right. I'd get a tunnel vision where I couldn't do anything else because that's where my self-esteem was coming from. That's where my happiness was coming from is that I was knocking this shit out of the park, being funny, creating this stuff. And now I'm the happiest I've ever been. And that hunger goes away. But it's like I was saying to you the other day. There's a reason why people retire. I mean, I think you have a shelf life as a creative person and you get to this age where you kind of want to do all the stuff that you didn't do when you were working yourself to death in your thirties. You've run out of contingency plans and you're living the real plan. A little bit. Yeah. I went to a therapist when we first moved here and I was very depressed because I was, you know, when we left LA, I was 55 and I was like, ah, I'm retired. <laughs> you know, cause I was fully vested. I'd been working since I was 11. So I had my pension yeah. and then we moved to Oregon for a year and I worked almost every fucking day on a show that I was on. I was just doing it in Oregon. And then we moved here and that show ended and it just kind of like, there was always Clarabelle. There will always be Clarabelle and there were other things, but I didn't want to audition for anything anymore. I had my shows that my work, but it had slowed way down. And now came the reality of being somebody who doesn't work a lot, you know? And that was a very weird transition because I was afraid of who I would be without my work. Yeah. But I was also really fucking tired. So what do you do with that when those, when that intersects? How do you, what do you do? And I was very depressed. And I said, I feel like I'm just waiting to die. And then I had this therapist that I, last year, who was so helpful. And she said, do you understand that this thing that you've created for yourself, this time in your life that you've created for yourself, where you have just enough work that you want to have, and you have pension, and you have royalty, and all this other stuff, you're living this period that people work their whole lives to have, and I don't understand why you're not enjoying it. And uh, that was hard, that conversation, because you tend to you tend to judge your value by your creative output. And when you're not putting out a lot, who are you? How, what good are you? That's a hard one. Is creativity a finite reservoir? I don't think it is a finite reservoir. I don't think it is, but I think the drive to see things to fruition is finite. Big projects. I think you become less interested in that. I, but I don't think that's true for everybody. I see people who are much older than me doing huge shit. But, you know, I always think when I see that, man, that person probably doesn't have much of a home life. I always think that. Because then you see people who disappear and you're like, good for you. You know, and then you find out after they've died, they spent the last 40 years in France. And you're like, fuck yeah. Why not? I think the, I think working to distraction when everything is just pushed out to all the, everything is pushed out of your life except work. 
I think that comes from kind of a dis-ease and an unhappiness. And so the creativity isn't an expression anymore. It becomes a tool. Yeah, maybe. Or or even a even a crutch or a or a habit. Yeah. There's there's literally a dopamine hit from being judged, paid, accepted based on your creative output. So it's like you and I have said, you're only as good as your last project, your last award, your last thing. So it stops being for all the reasons that drove you into it. And now it's a, a crutch, payoff, dopamine hit, what have you. Yeah. I, I, le- I was working with Make It Shy a Day. We both left Shy a Day. He went on to like Saatchi and uh, some other places, Deutsch and some did PlayStation and all this. He did really, really good work. And I had this uh, freelance agency and I did a lot of good work. And he kept saying, don't you want to get back into it? Wouldn't you like to be, maybe we could be a team somewhere. Wouldn't you like to be here? Would you like to be? And then he'd say, oh, you know, they're looking for a, a associate creative director. And I was like, Meh. And he said, why? You're so good. You still have so many good ideas. You'd be so good at that. And I said, you know, Nick, I've won every fucking major advertising award in the world. What am I going to do? Win it again? <laughs> And I think there's a lot of freedom in just saying, Meh, I did it. I'm done. I did it already. Let's do something else. That's the other thing. I have, I've had a lot of people say to me, you can't give up regrets. See, you can't do that. You can't walk away from that. You can't. I walk away from a lot of shit because I feel like I'll always have another idea. And I think when you hold on to stuff because you're desperate that you'll never come up with something else, you're right. I don't, I don't hold on to things that are successful. I do them until I feel like I'm finished and then I go on to something else. Or now I'm finding that I don't always. And sometimes it's a really short, it's a short period. Like we did, I did four videos, quarantine beauty videos. I did four of them and I laughed at all of them and I went, "Ah, I'm done. That's fine. I'm done. So it just uh, didn't, I, I, I'm a different person now. It sounds nostalgic. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you're mourning. It it sounds nostalgic. Like it was good and I wouldn't be here without that. Yeah. Unfortunately, there was a lot of that to get through to be here. Yeah. But no harm, no foul. I'm good where I'm at. Yeah. It's fine. And I've tried, you know, like during the past couple of years, I've thought I should do a play. That's what I should do. I should do a musical because I used to love doing them. And every time the audition comes around, I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to. I should take an improv class. That's what I should do. I enjoy doing that. Keep your instrument sharp. And you, uh, Jesus, no, I don't want to. Uh, God, you know, oh, give me a location, an occupation. Oh, I've been here. I've done this already. I think you just get to a place where it's like, you know, I've said what I want to say. I've done what I want to do. I've had a lot of success. I'm good. I'm good. I'll always be a creative person, I think, but, but I'm just kind of like, I'm good. Do you think you don't have the creative drive because you're happy? Um, that's a really good question. I would bristle at that question normally because I think that, that that can't be true. But the mania to produce did not come from happiness. It came from wanting to like myself. So I don't, I don't have that mania anymore. And I think that, that mania disappeared because I'm happy. But I still think of myself as a creative person and I still have ideas. But I'm also tired of the process, you know, of like 
trying to sell a show or trying to have meetings. And I'm just kind of tired of it. And I feel like I've sort of aged out of it, whether or not I think I'm still a creative person there. You do have a shelf life. I mean, Mick was such a genius. He was so talented and he won this $10 million piece of business for PlayStation when he was in his late forties and they fired him because they said, you don't know how to talk to the demographic because you're aging out of it. He was the same person with the same brain. But I can't walk into a play like Comedy Central. I can't go to, I can't audition for Saturday Night Live. Do you know what I mean? You just get to a point where they perceive you as being too old. And whether you are or you're not, your opportunities change. Let me ask you about that. That's interesting about Mick. When, when they fired him from that account, did he kind of shrug his shoulders and like, eh? No. No. It, no. it, it wounded him. It ruined him. Mm. It, it, it ruined him. He was never the same after that. Yeah. It just destroyed him. And you know, I, I, that's not going to be me. Mm -hmm. I watched my dad when I was a kid, not being able to work, not getting cast on stuff and just dissolving. And I watched him fall apart. And I remember saying to myself at a very early age, I am never, ever going to depend upon somebody else to allow me to be creative and work. That's never going to happen because it destroyed him. And it kind of happened to Mick too, because Mick was not entrepreneurial. He wanted to be part of a job of a company of a place. And he wanted that machine behind him and all that stuff. I don't, I'm more independent. So I'm fine with not having those things, but he needed that as permission. You got to really love the hustle if you want to be a freelancer. And if you're not good at that, then it's not for you. Yeah. I mean, there are species of creatives. Yes. I look at people like Mick and I am in awe of the ones who want to be in an institution. I know. He wanted to check every two weeks and he wanted a place to go and he wanted business cards and a desk and a thing. But you know, he's, he was old school in many ways. He went through art school to be in advertising, to have that. And then all of a sudden you know, things change and everybody's using computers and he's still using markers and storyboards. And he, he was kind of a man at a time in a way. Yeah. But, um, you know, you, you, you work real hard and you're really good. And then somebody comes out of college and wants a fraction of what you're making and knows how to do 600 programs that you don't know. And you just kind of become less, you gotta, you gotta start to move into management. And he didn't want to be management. He wanted to be creative. Is there something that Mick could have addressed yes. that would have reduced yes. the slope? Absolutely. What happened was when I started working with him, I became the face of the team. I was more comfortable making presentations because I'd been an actor, you know, my whole life and I could speak in a crowd of people. I liked being on stage. I liked talking to crowds. He, that was horrifying to him. So I became the face of it. And as a result, he didn't have to develop any of the people skills of selling work, of talking to people, of negotiating, of all that stuff you have to do when you're selling work. He didn't have to do it. I did it. And when we went separate ways, he didn't have the ability and he didn't want to be in management and he just didn't get the appreciation that he deserved. So that's, that's a really important thing. Even if you're working in a team, you need to be able to, it's good to augment each other's strengths and weaknesses and everything, but you need to be able to do everything. Not Maybe not as well as each other, but you got to be able to pick up the slack, right? Yeah. I'm not a brilliant art director, but if he were not available, I could do it. 
I he wasn't a great writer. He's a pretty good writer. If I was not available, he could do pretty close. He'd need a little punching up, but he'd come up with some great stuff. But if I wasn't around to present, he couldn't handle it. So you got to be able to do everybody's job in a team or you're going to get buried. And so not to belabor it, but, but how do you maintain that? How do you maintain that? Uh, I'm good. You know, it's a scrupulous honesty. That's the only way that I can describe it. I, a couple of years ago, I was looking at uh, tweets and there was a woman who I've done cartoons with for many, many years. And she had tweeted, I'm at Nickelodeon today. How lucky am I to be at Nickelodeon working on this show? And there's a part of me that just instinctively clenched. And I was like, God damn it. That should be, I should be fucking doing that. I should. And I just went, oh, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to do that. If I wanted to do that, I'd be there and I'd be doing it. So it's that, that's not a reflexive, like I should, I should, I should, but what do I want to do? So it's constantly stepping back when I'm feel, if I feel driven or anxious that I should be producing something or I should be just to step back and say, you know, John's really been great about this because he's really intent on me taking it easy. He really likes it. And I'll say something like, I think I should go watch TV. Go watch. You should. Well, I'm going to bring you a Coke. Go watch TV. You should. You know, just it's okay. The world's not going to fall. I was raised by a mother who would wheel the laundry in while you were watching television and would set up the ironing board and would tell you to iron while you were watching TV. TVs and in, in, in all the rooms where she had televisions, there was no chair. It was just a very clear message that you should always be moving and working and doing shit. And you should not be sitting around. She'd come home from going to the store. She'd put her hand on the TV to feel if it was hot. If you're watching TV in the daytime, you weren't allowed to do that. Wow. And so there has been a part, that kind of, you know, angsty, like I should be, should be, should be, is still in there. And I just keep trying to say, now, am I saying that because my mom's saying that? Do I want to be doing this? And most of the time, the answer is I really, I'm okay. I'd rather be gardening right now. I'd rather be walking the dog right now. This goes back to the earlier point that I brought up about the coaches. These coaches are your mom wheeling in the laundry and saying, you don't have to just sit there. Imagine what you can get done. You you can watch TV and have folded clothes. And my God, that's amazing. And on the flip side, which is healthier, you have someone like John who is exhibiting empathy and knows what value it is to see you to, to want you to be at rest and wants to coexist and take care not take from yeah well to be fair i bet a lot of people go to coaches and say help me get off my ass and i'm in a the position where i'm saying help me stay on my ass help me keep from reflexively intent intensely crazily push myself to do something that i don't want to do and will not do and then we'll hate myself for not doing it. Let's cut all that shit out and let's just jump to, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to. So it's still a, a path. It's still a process, but it's probably a little backwards from what most people are looking for, you know, coaching for. But I, this is what I should be doing is, is very little. <laughs> the other thing too is that I just don't have, my ego has changed completely. It used to be I needed to be heard. I wanted to make you laugh. That was a big, big issue for me. Is you know, it was, but it was servitude. I want to serve you because if I can make you laugh, then you'll like me, and then I'll add more value to our relationship because I'll be funny. So you'll like me. You know, it was like a 
It was the currency you dealt in for self-worth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a, uh, you know, you, you stop doing that and, um, and you stop having to, and you find yourself having relationships and connections with people that are not based on how much you give and do, but just a mutual respect. And it's different here. This is different. It's the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. So if I came to you as a client and I said, I have so much anxiety to produce, but I don't want to. And I just, I hate myself for not having a creative output, but I don't want to. What do I do? Would you try to make them want to? No. Or would you want, you make them want to be true to themselves, right? You make them want to be true to themselves. Also, you find out what makes you vibrate. What is it? Was it just writing a stupid blog? Was it contributing anonymously somewhere? Is it just these little quantum bubbles that just go boom and go away forever? That's enough. And if we got to the end of a session and that was now the extent of your creative output, or that's how it presented itself, I think we could all step back and look at it and be fine with it. Yeah, I agree. Mick used to always say happiness is a cheeseburger. And I never really knew what he meant by that. And then he finally explained it to me one day where he said, you know how you kind of think I'm a sad person? I always thought that about myself when I was younger. And then one day you realize, oh, I'm not a sad person. I'm just sad sometimes. Yeah. Because feelings are transitory, you know, it just comes and goes. And so if you look at it that way, then you have to accept that happiness is transitory. It comes and goes. It's these little bubbles that you're talking about. And Mick's theory was happiness is a cheeseburger. It's a piece of cake. It's a balloon. It's a day at the amusement park. It's a moment. It's a TV show you've been looking forward to. It's just a series of moments that you string together. And that's what happiness and fulfillment is. And and you start you start getting into trouble when you think that you're building something permanent. Yeah. I wrote a piece once about how um, this very thing about happiness being transitory and just being something you move through. And I was talking about how when I was younger and I'd watch commercials, I'd get very, uh, very worked up from them. There was a commercial where these two people, they're a couple, they've got to be like in their thirties. Right. And he's rented out a movie theater so he can play their wedding video in a movie theater. Like he's going to have that kind of fucking money. Right. And he gets down on his knees and gives her an eternity band. You're like, Oh, this is, I should have that. And then you look at uh, a, a commercial where it's a beautiful family sitting around at Thanksgiving and they're all eating and laughing. Oh, I wish I should have, I should have that. And then you step back and you go, you know what? These people are not a family. The people that you're aspiring to be don't exist. The husband who's rented out the movie theater is actually gay and living with his boyfriend in a studio apartment in North Hollywood. And the actress who's playing his wife is just like praying for that she gets a callback for that Dulcolax commercial so she can get her health benefits. And it's not, it's not real. But the projection, the outward projection of happiness and contentment is really seductive and really fucks you up. And I tell you, the, the worst damage that it was ever done to me in my life was beauty magazines when I was a kid. Mm-hmm that outer projection of what it should feel like, what it ought to be, what you ought to be. And even they aren't that, you know, even they don't exist and it's impossible and everything you feel lacking all the time. So you work yourself to death because you're good at that. And that's where you, that's where you get your fulfillment. Yeah. I mean, that's been inculcated in you since you were a little kid. Yeah. I have this saying, women die and men just break. (sighs) 
you get the family, you get the job, you just keep going. You do not stop. Your responsibility is no longer to yourself and you just go until you can go no longer. Yeah. I've heard that where men just turn into robots. Yeah. Well, it's just a lot of shoulds, you know, it's like, I, I've got to be this man and kids have to think I've got to be this child and wives think I have to be this woman. And it's all based on models that are created to sell stuff that are <laughs> largely not true, which I think is one of the reasons why I got into advertising. Cause I thought, God damn it, I'm going to tell the truth. And all the ads I did were very real. And that became kind of my hallmark. And man, people treat you like you invented fire when you tell the truth. <laughs> They really do. What was your favorite ad? That I saw or that I did? That you did. I think the ant killer stuff that we did, the ortho ant killer stuff. And it was just a guy talking about how much he loves killing ants. <laughs> fire ants are not lovable. People do not want fire ant plush toys. They aren't cuddly. They don't do little tricks. They just bite you and leave red stinging welts that make you want to cry. That's why they have to die. And they have to die right now. You don't want them to have a long lingering illness. You want death. A quick, excruciating, see you in hell kind of death. You don't want to lug a bag of chemicals and a garden hose around the yard. It takes too long. And baits can take up to a week. No, my friend, what you want is Ant Stop Orthene Fire Ant Killer from Ortho. You put two teaspoons of ant stop around the mound, and you're done. You don't even water it in. The scout ants bring it back into the mound, and this is the really good part. Everybody dies, even the queen. It's that fast, and that's good, because killing fire ants shouldn't be a full-time job, even if it is pretty fun. Ant Stop Orthene Fire Ant Killer from Ortho. Kick fire ant butt. For best results, always follow label instructions. Truthful. Yeah. My first stuff was... Uh, oh, I know. I'll do like a sped up voice of like a queen addressing her subject ants. And like, and they were like, no, 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 you don't understand. You don't have fire ants in, in California. So you don't know what we're talking about. They said, we hate them. So visceral hate, hatred of these ants. And I thought, oh, okay. All right. So it's a pleasure to kill them. So this guy was just like a little subversive that he was the voice of authority, but there was something wrong with him. He was so dry, but he was so excited about killing <laughs> these things and it was really funny and the, and PETA got mad and animal rights people got mad and people started calling stations to request them as to hear them because they thought they were funny and they just connected so then we did an apology commercial where he wasn't really sorry you know and and we just did this whole this whole vicious nasty but he was so friendly and i i'm i think those came out really well but it was true it was true I mean, you, you're not supposed to say that it's enjoyable to kill something, but it was. And people who have this problem, you know, who have these ants, enjoy killing them and seeing them die. And, uh, and then I got to meet Lou Wasserman as a result of that ad. So. <laughs> Smart Funny Tortured is produced by Cerebral Itch Labs and lovingly engineered and edited by April Winchell. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out smartfunnytortured.com for extra content, how to find us on social media, guest ideas, send us feedback, and pick up some very stylish merch. On the slightly too informative Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, there is a road race going on. That's it. Just a road race. Now, where's the first place you have to go? 
It's Mickey Park. And once you get there, look for the triangle-shaped bush. And remember, to find your first Mickey marker, you need to find a triangle bush. Well, might as well take a nap. I could look for that triangle bush later. Lots of shaped bushes. Now, where's that old triangle bush? Yippee! We found the triangle bush. And we found a Mickey marker. You found the Mickey marker. Wow. Just push this button for a special surprise. Special surprise! It's big! Wow. Uh, so, uh, just to make sure I'm clear on this, the triangle bush has a secret button on it. And when Mickey and his friends push it, fireworks go off. Uh, Disneyland really is the happiest place on earth. <laughs>